What is truth? Who made that famous statement? What is truth? Pontius Pilate, right? When Jesus said, I came to testify to the truth, okay? What is truth? It's still being said today. Truth is relative, or whatever works for you. Your truth's your truth. My truth's my truth. We still hear that. You guys hear that. Before I went to Masters, I went to a, a Mendocino College, which is a community college, and one of my gen ed requirements is I had to take a, a psychology class. And one of the things the professor said, beginning of the class, and I'm, I'm a fairly new believer at this time, he said, there is no such thing as absolute truth. And me being a little facetious, I said, that, how can you say that? So I raised my hand, and he goes, yes. I said, are you absolutely sure? Because to make that statement is to make an absolute claim. To say there's no such thing as absolute truth is actually making an absolute statement of truth, that you're saying there's no truth. It's, it's crazy. It's absolutely nuts. And you could look around right now, what's going on in our world, and people, even just logically, can't even make sense of, they, they don't even know what a boy is and what a girl is. I mean, it's, it's God giving them over to a depraved mind. Well, we believe in absolute truths, right? You better. Uh, you know, bankers believe in absolute truths. You go to the bank and say, hey, uh, I think I got $100,000 in my account. And he says, no, you don't. Well, my truth says I have $100,000. The banker says, well, your truth ain't right. <laughs> Try telling a soldier in battle when he has bolts flying out, those bolts aren't real, okay? He's gonna duck, okay? There is such thing as absolute truth, but this crazy world says that there's not. What's happening in our world right now is people are thinking with their feelings. People think with how they feel. Their feelings are their authority. Do you know what the difference between subjective versus objective is? Okay, feelings are subjective. The way you feel, people will base on, oh, this, I felt this way, or I got emotional at a, a movie, and that was God telling me something. That was the Holy Spirit. No, that was just your emotions, okay? Objective truth, what goes up must come what? Down. Actually, does anybody have a pen I could borrow? Because I'm going to need to use a pen here in a second. All right. This pen's going to get double illustration this morning. What goes up what must come down. Objective truth, it's called gravity. Okay? The word of God, the scriptures, are objective truth. Jesus said, thy word is truth. He said of himself that he is the way, the truth, objective truth, and the life. We have the privilege of having objective truth. We don't have to trust our feelings as an authority as the world does. Because the world doesn't have a standard for truth, they base it on Individual feelings of how, hey, your truth, your truth, my truth, my truth. We say, no, there's one standard of truth, and it's God's truth. His word, thy word, is truth. So we should be here this morning knowing that the word of God is true, and we should esteem it highly. The sad reality, though, is that the majority of so-called Christian churches in America do not hold the Bible, the word of God, as they should. It's been jokingly said that if all of the Christians in America all unanimously at one time picked their Bibles up off the shelves and blew the dust off, it'd be the biggest dust storm in world history. Now we jokingly laugh at that, but the sad reality is how many of you here this morning only pick your Bibles up and bring them to church? We are so privileged, you guys, to have the word of God. 
It's a shame that we take the freedom that we have in America so for granted. Uh, We have become so self-sufficient, or I would say apathetic, that we don't even care or appreciate that we're allowed to have Bibles. You are allowed to have a Bible. Whether it's on a device, okay? We have have a wealth of privileges and resources through online virtual ways of taking the scriptures in and through the physical Bible printed copies. If our church fathers were alive today, and we're to see the wealth and privileges that we have of God's word, and we're to see how neglected they are, they'd be outraged. Let me share a couple of these men with you. John Wycliffe, who in the 14th century translated the Bible from Latin to English so that the common man could understand the Bible, his work was so despised by the Catholic Church that Pope Martin V ordered Wycliffe's bones to be dug up and burned 40 years after his death for translating the Bible. Martin Luther, who challenged the authority of the Catholic Church in the 16th century and was one who lived to tell the tale, he exposed the heresy of indulgences, which was paying the Catholic Church money to have your sins forgiven. He taught from scripture that justification was through faith alone, okay? And he translated the Bible into the German language. William Tyndale was not spared like his friend Luther. Tyndale spent the last 500 days of his life in a cold castle dungeon. He was then tied to the stake, strangled, and burned. His crime? Printing Bibles in the English language. It's been said that the glue which holds your Bible together is the blood of the martyrs. We are so privileged to have the word of God this morning. We are so privileged to have God's word so that we can know God. God wants you to know him and he wants to speak to you through his word. And men have laid their lives down and shed their blood so that you could have a Bible in your lap this morning. We stand here today upon the shoulders of these men who went before us. In an article that I found in Voice of the Martyrs, which is a ministry that tracks what's happening, uh, Christian persecution around the world, Voice of the Martyrs, reported that a teenage girl in Iran became a Christian. She was raised in a Muslim family. When her father, who was a butcher for a living, heard that she had become a Christian, he held a knife up to her throat and made her recite Muslim prayers. This young girl was given a Bible, and she had hid it in her home. She would then take out and rip out pages of the Bible and put them in her pockets and would read them when she was alone. One day, her mother felt her clothing, found a page of scripture, and she reported it to her husband. This young woman's father severely beat her and arranged for her to marry a Muslim man. In response to this, the young woman ran away from home. A short time later, she called her father, pleading with him not to be angry. His response to her was, your sin will only be forgiven if your blood is shed. This young woman is still in hiding, but she knows that someone else has shed their blood for her sins and that she is forgiven. Who is that someone else? The Lord Jesus Christ. Do you treasure Christ Do you treasure Christ and his word the way that this young girl does? Another article in the same magazine reported that a missionary was in Pakistan just recently and handed a white-haired elderly Pakistani man a Bible. With tears in his eyes, this old man embraced the Bible, the book, and said, I have been waiting 80 years to have my own Bible. This is the greatest day of my life. I will pray every day until I die for those who gave me such an amazing gift. Do you realize that you hold a great gift in your hands this morning? 
the Bible. This book is the final authority, meaning that you are to do what it says. It is inspired, meaning God breathed. It is inerrant without error. It is infallible without flaw. It is perfect. It is holy. It is sufficient, meaning that it is able to minister or give counsel in all areas of your life and godliness. It is perspicuous, which means that it is clear. It is understandable. It is completely true, and it is the, the eternal words of God Almighty. So we must be here this morning knowing and believing that this book, God's word, is what we must submit to, we must understand it, we must honor it, we must be amazed by it, and deeply thankful for it. The title of my sermon this morning is God's Word in a Crazy World. We're gonna be looking at Hebrews chapter four, verse 12, and my hope and my desire this morning is that if you walk out of here with a deeper appreciation and conviction for the scripture, if that happens, my goal will be accomplished, okay? I'm gonna, I'm gonna be saying stuff to you that you guys have probably heard before, but all I wanna do this morning is I wanna help refocus our hearts and minds that on the word of God that we are so blessed to have because I think we're lullabied, I think we're apathetic, I think we're distracted, and we don't realize how privileged we are to have God's word. And I wanna restore in our hearts and minds right now because you and I are being bombarded by messages of the world that are screaming for your attention on media, social media, news outlets, radio, is screaming for you to look at what's going on world events, what's going on politically, and there's so many voices screaming for your attention, and God the whole time is saying, listen to my voice. We're more influenced by the culture than we are the Bible, and we're thinking more like Americans than we are Christian, and God's word is our rock, it is a light into our path, it is perfect, it is more precious than gold, much fine gold. The world's thinking is insane, it is crazy, the only source of true sanity, true reality is the Bible. You must be convinced of that this morning. So if you'll turn with me to Hebrews chapter four and we're going to look at some distinguishing marks of the word of God there's so much packed in this one little verse. Hebrews chapter four, read with me please. Verse 12. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword, and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Now the context here, before we jump into this verse, the writer of Hebrews is pleading with the Jews to trust in the finished work of Christ by remaining or entering into his rest, not being tempted to fall back into Judaism. All right, look at verse 11 right there, right before we read in verse uh, 10, Hebrews 4.11 says, sorry, I just lost my place here. Verse 11 says, therefore let us be diligent to enter that rest so that no one will fall through following the same example of disobedience. John MacArthur says, in looking at the context and rest, he says, the need for God's rest is urgent. A person should diligently be with intense purpose concerned 
and securing rest in him. It is not that he can work his way to salvation, but that he should diligently seek to enter God's rest by faith, end quote. So entering into his rest is trusting in the finished work of Christ. By remaining, resting in him, through his word, which keeps you from being tempted to fall back into Judaism. So that being said, this morning, we're gonna look at six distinguishing marks of the word of God. Six distinguishing marks. So if you're taking notes, I know on the back of your um, bulletin insert this morning, you could just write the first one down, right? First distinguishing mark that we're gonna see is the word of God is divine. Word of God is divine. So the word of God, the sword of the spirit, is the Christian's most invincible weapon. The first distinguishing mark we're going to see this morning, if you look at verse 12, for the word of God, stop, is just that. It's God's word. It's divine. Turn with me to 2 Peter. Look at chapter 1. 2 Peter chapter 1. Look with me at verse 20. Verses 20 through 21, Peter says, But know this first of all, that no prophecy of scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by the act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. The scriptures are through God, from God through a man. These men spoke from God. Look over at 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3. Look at verse 16. Chapter 3, verse 16 says that all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Verse 16 of 2 Timothy 3 says that all scripture is inspired. The word here in the Greek is actually God is breathed. Right? It's the same imagery that we get when God created Adam and Eve in the garden and God breathed the breath of life into Adam and he became a living soul. Okay? That's the same imagery that the word of God is alive, that it is God-breathed. It is inspired by God. But someone here this morning might say, but men wrote the Bible. How do you say the Bible's from God, but men wrote it? Yes, this is true. It is a dual authorship. There is only one primary author, capital A, and that is God. Now let me use an illustration. I told you I was going to use the pen, right? What goes up must come down, right? (laughs) Did this pen create itself? No. This pen did not create itself. It was created for a specific purpose. It cannot write on its own. It must be carried up, picked up, and moved along by something outside of itself in order to write, correct? So too were the 40 plus authors, small a, authors, that were created by God, created by God, those men, moved by God's inspired, God-breathed spirit of Christ to write his words to mankind. So the first thing we see this morning is that God's word is divine. This aspect that we can rest in God's word is that his word is divine. So go back with me to Hebrews chapter four. We're gonna look at our second distinguishing mark here. For the word is, we just saw, for the word is of God, it's divine first, and secondly, the word of God is living. Notice that it says is living, not was or will be. 
Jesus said in John 6, 63, that the words which he spoke are spoken are spirit and life. Jesus says that his words are alive, that they're living. The word of God is living. Charles Spurgeon, who is known as the Prince of Preachers, stated that this book has wrestled with me. This book has smitten me. The book has comforted me. The book has smiled upon me. This book has frowned at me. It's frowned at me. The book has held my hand. The book has warmed my heart. The book weeps with me. The book sings with me. The book whispers to me. It preaches to me. This is a living book, Spurgeon said. And to borrow from the words of Dr. Steve Lawson, he said at a shepherd's conference years back, he says, I've read many books, but this is the only book that has read me. The Bible is alive. It is a living book. The word is alive, but not only is it alive, we see next in Hebrews chapter four, it says that the word of God is just that, it's divine, and secondly, it's living, and thirdly, we see that the word of God is active. The word of God is active. In the original language of the Bible, in Koine Greek, the word active is where we get this word, it's called an ergase, where we get this, it's where our English word energy derives from. This active word, it has energy. The word of God has energy. It's energetic. It's dynamic. It's powerful. The word of God is so powerful that it has the power to convict. It has the power to save. It has the power to comfort. It has power to sanctify and power to strengthen. Isaiah 55 verse 10 says that this active word goes out and will not return what? Void. It will not return empty or void. And in Isaiah 40 verse 8, this active word will stand forever. The word of God will stand forever. This active word is eternal. It's everlasting Jesus said in Matthew 5.18 that not even the smallest stroke, jot or tittle, will be removed from the letter from the law. It says not even the smallest letter will be removed. It will never pass away. And in Matthew 24.35, Jesus says that his own words will never pass away. This active book is undefeatable. Think about it. We're here this morning because of this book. 2,000 years ago, when Jesus commissioned his disciples to take his message to the world, and the scriptures are now formed, we're here because of faithful men and women before us that have continued to pass this active word on. And unless the Lord Jesus comes back, this word is still going to be marching on. We're going to be dead and in the grave and with the presence of the Lord, and the word of God is still going to be active, moving and changing and transforming people's lives with the power of the gospel. This book is undefeatable, it is active, it is alive, and we are here this morning because of this active word. As I mentioned earlier, Wycliffe, Luther, all right, Tyndale, we're here today standing upon the shoulders of these men who went before us, who participated with this active word. So, we see, thirdly, that this word is active. Next, fourthly, if you're taking notes, fourthly, distinguishing mark we see in the word of God this morning, is that the word of God is razor sharp. Razor sharp. Look with me again at our verse. For the word is of God, it is living, it is active, and it is right here, sharper than a two-edged sword, able to, um, yeah, sharper than a two-edged sword. Just pause right there. The word of God is the sharpest weapon in the world. There's no dull or blunt verses in the Bible. Not only is it sharper than a single-edged blade, it is a double-edged blade. 
a double-edged blade was used in battle. Why? So when you're fighting with your sword, you could use both edges of the blade. The sword cuts both ways. It cuts both ways. And listen to me, the word of God is the same. It's not single-edged only, but it's double-edged and that the word of God is so powerful that it cuts both ways. It can both, I would say this, it can both comfort, actually say it this way, the word of God, it both comforts the wounded and afflicted and it can wound the inflict, and it can wound and inflict the comfortable. Let me read that. It both comforts the wounded and afflicted and it wounds and inflicts the comfortable. The word of God has such power to cut both ways and that it can, it can tear down and it can build up. It can convict and it can convert. It can save and it can damn. It softens and it hardens. It enlightens and it blinds. It both justifies and it judges. It is both law and it is both grace. It exposes sin by conviction and it covers sin by forgiveness. This sharp, two-edged sword cuts both to convict and to heal. Some have compared the weapon of the word of God, the sword of the spirit, have compared it to that of a razor-sharp scalpel, like that of a doctor um, that a doctor would use in surgery. Not only can the Bible wound and inflict the comfortable, self-righteous, prideful man, yet it can comfort and heal like that of a doctor's razor-sharp scalpel. So many so-called pastors and ministers, all they want to do is stand up and tell stories and use illustrations and then sprinkle it with a verse to fit with, with what they want to say. And half the time the verse is out of context. They are preaching, they're like trying to do heart surgery with a butter knife. It's like using plastic utensils to try to heal someone. When God has given us the sufficient word of God, which is sharper than any weapon in the world and sharp enough to get to your very heart. This is where the power is. This is what God's means is to save and transform and change and sanctify this world. You need to see the word of God as God sees it. And he wants you to be amazed at his word and be deeply thankful that you can know it and know the power of it in your own life. The word of God cuts both ways. It is razor sharp. It is two-edged. It is the Christian's most invincible weapon. The fifth distinguishing mark that we see from our verse this morning, look with me again, for the word is of God, divine, it is living, it is active, it is sharper than a two-edged sword. And right here, number five, and it pierces as far as division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow. So this fifth distinguishing mark, we see the word of God is able to pierce us. The word of God is piercing it pierces as the imagery of one being stabbed with a knife or as when a woman pierces her ears. This is the imagery of the power of the word of God that it pierces, it cuts us to the very core. In regards to the soul and spirit here, joints and marrow, this is a figurative exp expression. The piercing of the depth of soul and spirit is not a difference between the soul and spirit. Okay, it means that the word of God cuts us so deep to the core of who we are, the spiritual makeup of who we are, and not only that, but to the physical makeup of who we are, to both joints and marrow inside the bones. The word of God cuts, pierces us to the core of our being, 
to the depths of the inner man, to our what? Our hearts. Check this out. Flip over to Acts. Look at Acts chapter 2. At the birthday of the Christian church, what's called Pentecost, at the birthday of our church, at the church, Peter stands up in Peter chapter 2 and he gives the first sermon, the first Christian message ever preached. This is, the, this is the template. This is the model, the pattern that every faithful minister of Christ needs to follow. Peter stands up and gives a sermon where 3,000 people get saved that day. And what does Peter preach? Himself? No. I'm not going to read through the whole sermon, but I just want you to look. Look at, second, uh, look at Acts chapter 2 and just watch. Peter's giving this sermon. Look at what he's doing here. Look at verse 17. In verse 17, he's quoting Joel 2. In verse 25, he quotes Psalm 16. In verse 30, he quotes Psalms 132. Okay, And in verse 31, he's quoting Psalm 16 again. In verse 34, he's quoting Psalms 110. I just want you to see this is Peter's sermon. Look how he preaches. By Peter quoting these scripture citations, he is setting an example of how we should preach the word. He is thrusting this sharp sword and convicting the very conscience and soul of his listeners. And what was the result? What's the result of Peter's sermon? Okay, look at verse 37. Okay, Acts 2, verse 37. What was the result? It says, and they were, when they heard the sermon, the word of God preached, when they heard this, they were what? pierced or cut, pierced to the heart. They were pierced as being stabbed with a knife to the heart by hearing the preaching of the word. What was the response to this piercing? What was the response? What do they cry out? What must we do to be saved? What should we do? Because the word of God is so powerful that it cuts you, it pierces to the very heart. So any faithful minister that's going to preach and proclaim from any pulpit, he has nothing to say except what the word of God says. You have nothing, your conviction should be, I want to hear my Savior. Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice and they follow me. Your conviction as a Christian, as a listener, a follower of Jesus Christ is to find a man, a minister who says, thus saith the Lord. The word of God pierces us to the point where these new our very, very first Christian church, when it was birthed at Pentecost, these 3,000 souls that were added, it began with the preaching of the word. This is why the apostle Paul can tell Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 2, he says, preach the word. And he can say in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6, do not go beyond what is written. Are you beginning to see why we should be so committed to the preaching and teaching of the Bible. When a Christian rightly understands and knows how to use this invincible, living, active, sharp, two-edged, piercing weapon, the Christian is truly armed and dangerous. The last distinguishing mark that we see this morning in our verse, look back at Hebrews with me, chapter 4. For the word of God is living, it is active, and it's sharper than a two-edged sword, piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow, and is able right here, number six, to judge, to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. 
Once our hearts have been exposed to the word of God, once the heart has been pierced, okay, and once the soul is laid bare, then the word of God begins to judge. It begins to, it, it cuts you to the core of your being, joints and marrow, soul and spirit. He gets to the core of you and he starts exposing to you who you are, right? This is how powerful the word of God, what nobody else can see gets right into who you are. Nobody else can see what the word is doing in you. It begins to judge. No one can be saved until they know that they are lost. No one can embrace the good news of the gospel until they know the horrifying news of the consequences of their sin. The judging word condemns our wicked hearts. Jeremiah 17 verse nine says that our hearts are deceitful above all else. That our hearts are sick. Our subjective feeling with their, thinking with their feelings world wants to tell you Hey, trust your heart. Just follow your heart. God says, no, your heart is wicked. Don't trust your wicked little heart. Your heart is bent on evil. You need a new heart. You need a heart transplant, right? One that is changed by the power of the gospel. You are not a good person as the world tries to tell you. The word of God is so powerful that it judges our hearts. And it says it judges the thoughts and the intentions Thoughts and the intentions. What does that mean? Can somebody, what, give me one word that would describe thoughts and, and intentions. Starts with an M. What's that? I didn't hear it. Motive? Motives. God's word is so powerful that it can call you out and judge you on why you do what you do. Your thoughts, your intentions, the secret places that nobody sees, why you do what you do. God's word is so powerful to get into your motives. His word calls out, why are you doing this? Even good, right things. Why are you doing this? Are you doing this to be noticed by men like the Pharisees? Are you doing this to try to earn justification before God? You could put up the front and the smile and act like everything's good. I'm so spiritual. And God says, I see you. I see you, I know you, and I can speak to you, and I, want, I love you enough to change you. And his word is his means, it's God's tool to change you, to get into your heart. And his word judges us, and it calls us out for our good and for his glory. The word of God judges our motives. Liberal critics of the Bible, all right, they have it as their motive to want to sit in judgment upon the Bible. But I'm telling you, the Bible's not on trial. We are by it. The word of God judges. I don't have to stand here this morning and try to prove or convince to any of you that the word of God is true. It's true whether you like it or not. Jesus said, thy word is truth. So why do so many people hate this book? It's because this crazy world wants to live by their own truths. This crazy world wants to do what's ever right in their own eyes. They wanna say, hey, whatever works for you, your truth, your truth, my truth, my truth. Why are they saying that? Because they don't want to submit. They want to do what they want, but God's word judges, and it calls them out, and it tells them, no, there's only one truth, and it's not your truth, it's not my truth, it's God's truth. His word, thy word, is truth. So why do so many people hate this book? It's because it judges the thoughts, the motives of their hearts and tells them they can't do whatever they want to do. 
One of my favorite quotes is from Charles Spurgeon. He states, he says, the word of God is like a lion. You don't have to defend it. You just let it out of its cage. We don't have to doctor this up. We don't have to try to make it sound appealing to people. We know that this book pierces, cuts, right? You just gotta say it. Speak the truth. One of my good friends, you might know him, he's over at City Bible, Ben Naido. He goes down to Planned Parenthood and he stands out there and he told me, he says, Dave, I, I don't have to go, he says, I don't take a, um, what's the expression, a, a knife to a gunfight. I, I don't have to stand then, down there and try to convince these women that what they're doing is taking the life, murdering a child. He's like, he says, we pray and we preach the gospel. We don't have to enter in all these arguments and debates and try to say which side's right. He says, we come with the power of the word of God and that's what changes hearts. Jesus Christ, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the word of God made flesh has been let out. And I would say to you this morning, how will you respond to God's word? How shall you respond to the truth of the word of God this morning? Do you realize that God is sovereign over all? That the nations, Isaiah, Isaiah tells us that the nations are like a drop in the bucket. And we're so concerned about what empires are doing. Empires rising, empires falling. Kingdoms rise, kingdom fall. God is sovereign over rulers, over nations. And I know it's even hitting home right now. It's what's going over in Russia and Ukraine. But we need to draw near to the throne of grace through his word, because this is where we're gonna find comfort. This is where we're gonna find guidance. And we need to start realizing that our kingdom is not earthly, okay? We are about his kingdom come, his will be done. Not my kingdom come, my will be done. And we need to be passionate that we have a message that's far more superior than the politics and all the things that our people are arguing about. We need to stand up and say, this is the voice that God wants you to hear. The influence that he wants to have in your life is that I'm thinking and I'm being more persuaded by in hearing his voice than I'm in the voices that are in this world. And my hope this morning is that you would draw near to him and that if God would be pleading through me, that you would hear his voice say, will you just turn off the news? Will you come sit at my feet and let me minister to your soul? And will you preach the gospel? What they need is hope. What they need is pardon and forgiveness. They need men and women to be interceding in prayer, communing with God and his word. Act like Christians. Don't be tempted to be distracted with all these messages. I know we're in it but we're in it to pray and to represent a different kingdom. I challenge you this morning, take the word of God now you've heard it. I hope you've been, I hope you can't wait to get home to read it. I hope, like, God, I've been so privileged to have your word and it's so powerful, it does all these things. I want it to transform me. Embrace the sword, love the convicting work of the word. Love the healing work of the word. And some people have said this before, get into the word and let the word get into you. Again, this book is divine. This book is alive. This book is active, it's sharp, it pierces, it judges, and it's after your heart. Now, we don't worship the book, okay? We worship the God of the book, but you can't know the God of the book if you don't know his word. You see what I'm saying? They, they're tied. 
The only way you can know him greater and hear him is by hearing what he's revealed. This is his means to communicate to you. This is how God wants to speak. We're not called to go up somewhere and hum and go, hmm, God, just speak to me. No, that's subjectivism, okay? That's mysticism, saying, God, just tell me something. I have right here. And nobody even knows what he says. So how can you even trust subjective feelings if you don't know the objective truth of the word? God has given us feelings. That's, that's fine. That's beautiful. But those feelings must be tempered by truth. So you'll know what is true when you have subjective things affect you. So know the word of God this morning. So now that we have stepped back and had a strong look at this invincible, mighty weapon of the word of God, I want to paint a picture for you. Imagine with me in your mind's eye, picture, picture a battle tank. In your, in your sanctified imagination or your mind's eye, whatever you want to say, picture in your mind a battle tank with me. Look at its incredible features. Think of the bulletproof armor casing around it. See the high-speed tracking wheels. Look at the strength of its engine, its agility, its high performance. But what makes this tank so intimidating? There's one thing I haven't mentioned. What is it? The cannon. The tank was made to what? Boom, to blast. What is, as we've looked at this tank of God's word, what is its blast? The word of God has a blast, and it is the gospel. Look back with me at Acts chapter 4. Look at chapter, at chapter 4, verse 12. Luke says here, he says, there is salvation in no one else, for no other name under heaven has been given among men by which we must be saved. There is salvation in no one else, no other name. Which name? The King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the President of Presidents, the Governor of Governors, Jesus Christ. This name I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can go to heaven except through me. Jesus Christ claimed complete exclusivity, saying that he is the truth, objective truth, that he is the way, that no other way, no other religion, no other person, no other system of belief can save you. And look at the end of verse 12. Be saved from what? by which we must be saved. A, stress, a stressful life, is that what we need to be saved from? People don't know what, it, what are, what's the whole purpose? What's this canon gospel blast you guys are talking about? You Christians are all passionate for. Oh, oh, I need to be saved? Oh, okay. So turn on the TV. You need to be saved from financial debt. You need to be saved from, from a disease. You need to be saved from suffering, from persecution, from a stressful life, from poor health. No, what do we need to be saved from? We need to be saved from ourselves, from our wicked, rebellious hearts. We need to be saved from God. You need to be saved from God? We just sang it. I'm seated at his table, why? For the wrath of God has been satisfied, satisfied, propitiation. The God whom we need to be saved from is the God who saves us. You and I stand guilty and condemned. I've heard people say, well, how could God, if he's so loving, let anybody go to hell? 
No, how can God, because he's so holy, let anybody go to heaven? The fact that he chooses to show mercy and grace to anyone is incredible, amazing love. But yet God in his kindness, instead of giving you and me what we deserve, we deserve wrath. You deserve the wrath of God for your sin because you've rebelled against him and said, I love me and I want to live by my own truth. I want to do my own way. And God in his character, because he is holy and just, must give you just punishment and he must give you what your sin deserves, wrath. So when we ask the question by which we must be saved, the question is, saved from what? We need to be saved from the consequences of our sin. That our consequences of our sin are deserving of the wrath of God. And our, um, sorry here, man's greatest need is forgiveness, forgiveness from sin. All of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Our God is holy and perfect. We have disobeyed and rebelled against his holy word. If you're here this morning and you say that you have not sinned, you're a liar. We've all sinned. If you think you're perfect, you're a liar and you're deceiving your own heart. The, word, the truth is not in you. All of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The penalty of our sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ. You cannot be saved until you know that you are lost. You cannot embrace the good news of the gospel until you know the horrifying news of the consequences of your sin, eternal separation from God, death and hell. The good news, though, is that God demonstrates, okay, this is the cannon blast we're talking about, right? You recognize that I stand condemned before a holy God, and he is completely just to give me what I deserve. But what's amazing is that God, instead of giving what you deserve, he demonstrates his love towards you, that while you were still a sinner, he sent his own son to die for you. Jesus took your death penalty that you deserve for your sins. This is truly amazing love. This is the cannon blast. How will you respond? Will you be like those beginning Christians who after hearing the word of God by the apostle Peter in Acts responded by saying, what must we do to be saved? Are you pierced to the heart as they were from the preaching of the word? Has the word made its way into your heart this morning? Do you recognize that God wants, he wishes none for perish, none to perish. God is making an offer, an appeal to you this morning. You know, we had the privilege to take communion here a second ago for the saints that have, have surrendered and repented and said, God, I trust in you alone and you've given me the faith to trust in you and I want to now celebrate the Lord's table and remembering, Jesus, what you have done and laying your body on that cross for me, that you died in my place. And we got to stand as a church family and we got to remember our Lord together. And there were some of you this morning, maybe some of you young, young adults, Maybe some of you that are visiting this morning and you recognize, hey, I see what's going on here. and I, I, I'm hearing about Jesus. I'm hearing these truths, but I don't know where I stand yet. The invitation is to you. You are invited to come to Jesus Christ. God offers you pardon. He says, turn from your sin. Turn from your rebellious way of trusting in yourself and now surrender and look to me and trust in me for your only pardon for the forgiveness of your sin. And you can be saved. And you can remember now at the table, come and be a part of the family of God. God pleads with you this morning and he blasts you. I hope this morning that I blasted you with the cannon of the tank of the word. And that if you're not a believer this morning, there's two applications. For all those who are here this morning that love Jesus Christ, 
that you're a Christian, we should walk out of here going, oh my, I get to have a Bible. I get to have the word of God in my, my language. I'm so thankful, Lord, I'm so thankful that I can have your word. That should be your heart. If you're not a Christian this morning, that means nothing to you because you haven't tasted and seen how amazing he is. The message for you, if you haven't come to faith in Christ, is receive the cannon blast. Let that thing hit you. Take it in and respond in faith and say, God, beg for his, his mercy. Say, God, forgive me. I want to know you. I want to love your word and cherish it as you have said it is to be. So let's close with this. If you would, if you don't mind, would you just bow your heads? If you want to close your eyes, you can. Would you just bow your heads, look down? I want to ask you a couple questions for you to consider, to ponder. Just reflect upon these. Ask yourself, where do changes need to be made in my life in regards to the word? Where does the word need to have more importance in your life, in your marriage, in your family, with your parenting, with your friendships? What would God be asking you to do? How will you leave here this morning? Will you leave here being a doer of the word or just a hearer who deludes themselves and walks out unchanged? Take the word of God and let it impact your heart and change you. Just take a moment, reflect on those, and then I'm gonna close this in prayer. Oh Lord, the world's thinking is going crazy. Lord, we see it, it just seems to be getting more insane. Your word is the only source of true reality. Your word is the only source of true sanity. Father, I pray for my dear friends here, my brothers and sisters in Christ, that you have encouraged their hearts this morning to see your word as a light into their path, to see that your word is perfect, that it restores our soul. That God, we would be convicted to, to love it, to study it, to memorize it, to hear it, to proclaim it, to preach it, to live it, that your word would be our chief aim and our as ambassadors of your kingdom, living for your kingdom, that we would proclaim your word to a lost world. This is the only hope. This is, we love this world around us that's, even though their thinking is insane, we want to help them with their insanity. We want to bring saneness to their heart and mind that they can know truth and not think with their feelings. We thank you, God, for opening our eyes, giving us a new heart, Lord, for your children, for your church here, your word has transformed us. We, have, we know your spirit is at work to use your word to convict us of our sin, to make us a more holy people for your name's sake. We thank you that your gospel is a blast. Your gospel is, is the power for salvation. For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of the world, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God. God 
was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe.